when it rains, it pours, the saying goes. Right now, it's cascading in Pakistan. All right, there is a bit of a pun here, since one of the issues the country is facing is heavy monsoon rain unseen in years. Catastrophic flooding in Pakistan has killed more than 1,000 people. You heard that number correctly. Entire villages have been washed away by the floodwaters, and officials say nearly one million homes have been damaged or destroyed. This is what a flash flood sounds like. And this is an entire building collapsing and submerging into a flooded river. But it's also witnessing a political showdown. Pakistan is facing a political crisis. Between the government and the military on the one hand, and the populist former Prime Minister Imran Khan on the other. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Essential Middle East podcast. I'm Sami Zaydan. Okay, Pakistan is in South Asia, but it's also considered part of the greater Middle East. You see, it has military, political, and economic ties with many Arab and Muslim countries. So what we're going to do is try and dissect the geopolitical impact and ramifications on the region with our guest now. Over to you, Musharraf. Salam and hello. I'm Musharraf Zedi. I'm the CEO and founder of a think tank and advisory services firm called Tabad Lab. Tabad Lab is a derivative of two words, Tabadla, which really means exchange. The root word is Badal, which is both Arabic, Farsi and Urdu, and laboratory, which is the place where we experiment. I'm currently based in Islamabad and that's where I'm joining you from. Amazing. I love the Tabad Lab. I love it. Well, let's start with what's going on in Pakistan and the government's declared a national emergency. The pictures look terrible, frankly. Is the situation under control? That's a tough one, Sami. It's hard to say that things are under control given that the most recent fatality number is now 1,062, of which there are 359 children that have passed away in the flood so far. It's heart-wrenching, and it's also, I think, a commentary on the scale and the devastation climate change is causing, that these floods are causing. But of course, uh, you know, there's also an element of uh, Pakistanis ruining missed opportunities for our country to be better prepared to do climate mitigation and adaptation. So there's a lot of mixed feelings about, you know, what's happening, but most of all, I think, Rather than whether things are under control or not, I think there's a sense of sadness and a real effort by all kinds of people from every walk of life to try and mobilize, collect donations, and send them to the people that need them right now. Well, that's good to hear that people are mobilizing, but there's a lot to be fixed, isn't there? Goodness, I was reading some of the numbers. 1,800 miles of road, 130 bridges... You know, that's a lot of that. Why is the damage so extensive? Well, I think the first thing to understand about these floods is this is not like, you know, somebody turned on the tap in the sky. 
This is like the great gig in the sky decided to dump buckets of water on Pakistan. So I think it's important to remember or try and contextualize the quantum of rain. So, for example, Balochistan, which is the least populated, most scarcely populated province, and also the one with the most problems in terms of poverty, in terms of conflict, in terms of people not being served at all because they live in far-off rural areas. It's hard to get to them. People in Balochistan have been sick and tired of how they're ignored by people like me, by people in Islamabad, our capital city, and Karachi, our largest city and our financial capital. So in addition to all those problems of scarcity and sparseness, you now have 5.2 times the rain that would ordinarily fall on Balochistan in the monsoon season. Our monsoon season technically should begin in late July. Over the last decade or so, it's been getting earlier and earlier in terms of when it starts and later and later in terms of where it ends. A humanitarian catastrophe is unfolding. The government has appealed for international aid, blaming the horrors of climate change for the tragedy. Is that climate change on a side note that just came to my mind? It's 100% climate change. I mean, there's two elements to the climate change element here. The one is that our glaciers, a lot of these mountains are covered with basically plain ice, right? And they've been like that for hundreds of years. And as the world heats up, that ice melts. Exactly. And it's not, you know, think of the ice cubes melting and them sitting at a high ground and the water sort of trickling down. And then imagine that ice cube being hundreds and hundreds of square miles. That water's got to go somewhere, in other words. Exactly, and and sadly, because of, I think, there's been a lot of work on climate change mitigation, climate change adaptation, but nowhere nearly the quantum of work that a country that has 234 million people, in mostly increasingly in cities, climate change has been on the docket for years. Did Pakistan have the right infrastructure, the right changes, the right measures going on to deal with this? Because this won't be the last year if it's climate change, will it? No, I think we're hard in for the long term. We're going to have to deal with these challenges. And it's not just too much water, it's also too much heat. We've had summers and heat spells where people have just been dropping like flies in our big cities. I always am stuck between trying to explain some of the dysfunctions that create the vulnerability and and the problems in this country on the one hand, and Mm -hmm. also trying to explain that a lot of what Pakistanis suffer or what Pakistan suffers from is not just attributable to Pakistan itself or to its elite. There's a lot of external factors. To give you one example, our glaciers aren't melting because we consume too much electricity, because we drive too many gas guzzlers, because we produce too many styrofoam cups. Our glaciers are melting because you (laughs) consume too many styrofoam cups, pump too much carbon monoxide into the atmosphere, drive too many gas guzzlers, and basically overheat the planet. When I say you, I mean people all over the world. Pakistan has one of the lowest carbon footprints in the world, but one of the highest vulnerabilities because of its geography. Nearly 300,000 homes destroyed by the heavy rains and resulting floodwaters. Roads and bridges have collapsed and communication lines severed, leaving swathes of the country cut off. We've seen videos of entire buildings collapsing. And I've got to wonder, were there some violations of construction codes? Was there some monkey business going on? Like, how does a whole building crumble like that? 
like just a piece of cake. Well, we've had en masse building code violations from the north to the south, cities, towns, villages, every which way. And part of the reason is that the Pakistani elite doesn't like local governments very much because local governments means that people get to rule over their own schools, their own clinics, their own roads. They get to raise local taxes and they get to spend them for themselves. The Pakistani elites, well, whether it's the military or the politicians or the bureaucrats, all of them prefer that they extract revenue much like the way that the British used to and basically maintain law and order and continue their merry way. The cost of that in a country that has 30 million people, 40 million people is, of course, very high. But the cost of that for a country that has 234 million people suffering from climate change, well, those images of those buildings falling, that's the cost. That's a cost. Let's talk about the political calamity, too, if we can. Many people are worried, frankly, the country could spiral into political violence. Former Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan is facing terrorism charges after being accused of making threats against the police and judiciary at a political rally. Look, Musharraf, is Khan facing justice or a politicization of justice? Oh, he's absolutely facing the same politicization of justice that he himself so willingly and relentlessly indulged in. So this is just to silence him or subdue his popularity? What's the point here? Well, the point is to punish Imran Khan. Imran Khan chose to stand up to some pretty powerful people in Pakistan. And the cost of standing up to them is the kind of political ride that he's been on for the last seven or eight months. He was voted out of office. His allies in parliament and in his own party abandoned him. Who did he take on that was a step too far, do you think? Well, it was the military leadership with whom he had a, I think, not just a difference of opinion in terms of policy, but also maybe a clash of personality. Uh, the irony, of course, is that it's that same military leadership that made Imran Khan prime minister in the first place. He enjoyed carte blanche from the military, not only insofar as how he was elected to office, but then also in terms of how he conducted himself in office. So basically, do you feel the military is now going after him? Absolutely it is, yeah. And who can stand up to the military, eh? Especially in a place like Pakistan. Well, I think in any country, the, the national security infrastructure is usually pretty powerful and usually for good reason. Uh, Pakistan's military enjoys inordinate power with respect to domestic politics. But as I mentioned before, there's a very complex set of circumstances that Pakistan has to survive in. And so that power is really rooted in the neighborhood and the circumstances Pakistan exists in. Most politicians make their peace with it and try and operate within the lines uh, set by the military. Khan, of course, was never going to be that guy. What did he do that was so different? Well, he, <laughs> there's been a series of things that he's done. There were uh, differences of policy in terms of the relationship with China and how that should be managed, certainly in terms of the relationship with the United States and how that should be managed. There were differences of policy in terms of how he presented and postured vis-a-vis -vis Pakistan and its sovereignty and Pakistan and its place in the world. There was a massive blowout last year on the appointment of a new intelligence chief 
To my mind, that was probably the straw that broke the camel's back, if you will. And ever since then, uh, we've been in this cycle of political victimization, victimhood, and aggressive moves by Imran Khan challenging the orthodoxy in this country. Well, his party did win a local by-election in Karachi, right? And we've seen tens of thousands of people come out and attend his rallies. Does it look like he's making a comeback to power? What do you think? Yeah, Sammy, I think Khan is the most popular that he's ever been. And part of that has to do with the fact that he was removed in a kind of very transparent, crude way. There wasn't really any specific political crisis or economic crisis that triggered the decision to have him removed. And the people that were involved in removing him are the people that have always been kind of around in the system to take down somebody that steps out of line. But hang on, you know the argument is that he lost he lost uh, enough support in Parliament. That's why he had to go. Yeah, but, you know, my argument would be, A, I'm not sure that the support he had in Parliament was organic. The support he had in Parliament was arranged for him because there were a bunch of generals in 2018 who felt like he was the answer for Pakistan's problems. And as usual, the generals got it wrong. Khan has been vocal in criticizing the Pakistan government as well as the army since being toppled. Meanwhile, the Shabazz Sharif government has banned all news channels from broadcasting Khan's speeches and rallies. Right, right. Well, his allies are being arrested now. Media outlets close to him are being, well, kind of silenced or intimidated. Do you think it's going to end with him really being pushed out of the picture, no matter how much he tries to fight back? No, I, I think popular Pakistani leaders have a longevity that really follows its own trajectory and course, and there's very little that the system can do to take them out. Of course, all the efforts that are being made, some of them are legitimate. I think he's he and his party have done things that merit some response by the authorities. Could it lead to violence, though? I mean, you could never rule that out, but I think the kind of support base that he has is less likely to be violent and more likely to be very, very unhappy. And I think that the threat of that unhappiness is a significant informant of how both the military and traditional politicians that are not with Imran Khan, how they analyze and assess the state of the country uh, depends very much on, you know, the happiness of the electorate. And of course, his critics would argue and say, well, hey, he's crying foul now. But when he was in office, he also tried to silence the media and his critics. Well, that's exactly what a lot of people that are critical of him are saying. And I'm also very clear that the precedents for this behavior, maybe Khan didn't start it, but he certainly indulged in plenty of it himself. So... Pakistan, as usual, is in this cul-de-sac, like you said, between a rock and a hard place. Well, you know what the implications are of what you're saying, Musharraf, is that basically the judiciary is not as independent as perhaps we'd like to think. What, are they just a tool in the hands of the military? Sami, I think that the judiciary is independent on some issues and aligned with the judiciary on other issues and aligned with Imran Khan on other issues. Well, hang on, you said, uh, did you mean and aligned with the military on some issues? Yes. Oh, okay, sorry, just to clarify that. So they're kind of aligned with the military on some issues, aligned with Khan on some issues, but do they just go wherever they please? I, uh, yeah, I think maybe sometimes there's a little bit of 
convenient wink, wink, and nod, nod. But one thing about the judiciary that I think begs to be sort of said and repeated is that for the majority of the last decade, decade and a half, it's treated Imran Khan with kid gloves. There's really nothing he has said or done that the judiciary thought was worth exploring or investigating. His most recent violation, the so-called threat that he issued against a judge, he's done stuff like that for years in much bigger fora and gotten away with it. So there's certainly a case to be made for some inconsistent application of justice and application of norms and application of laws. Let's talk a little bit about the regional, the international fallout of this crisis. This is going to have impact beyond Pakistan's borders, right? I think that whenever Pakistan runs into trouble, a lot of the support for getting it out of trouble has to come from other countries. This is the Prime Minister of Pakistan, Mr. Shahbaz Sharif. Thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you very much. Uh, you've been assured of $3 billion worth of investment from That's the Qatar right. Investment Authority. You came asking for help to resurrect the economy. How successful have you been? Qatar has been Pakistan's uh, one of the greatest supporters. And in times of difficulties, Qatar has always been standing by Pakistan. Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and China, and Qatar have all just signed up to a significant package of assistance and investment that will probably prevent Pakistan from becoming like Sri Lanka in terms of a default. Now, with the floods and with the deepening of the political crisis, with Imran Khan basically not budging and getting more and more antsy in terms of his demands, those packages of support may not be enough to allow Pakistan to exit this crisis mode. So on the one hand, it's under the squeeze economically. On the other, it's got these floods to contend with. And obviously, with Afghanistan not being recognized by the world anytime soon as a legitimate government, those pressures are going to start adding up. Indeed. Well, Imran Khan kind of spoke about being ousted by a foreign conspiracy. Is there any real evidence of that? Zero. Imran Khan's imagination is going to take him and the people of Pakistan to any lengths that they need to go to to secure power for Imran Khan again. This is really about Imran Khan becoming prime minister again. And he's managed to figure out a way to hack the Pakistani voter. And this foreign conspiracy narrative has actually, as ridiculous as it sounds to reasonable people all over the world, has found a massive audience within Pakistan. That, too, is going to affect how other countries engage with Pakistan, in particular the United States. The United States has called Imran Khan's bluff on a so-called foreign conspiracy to oust him. U.S. State Department spokesperson told India today that there is no truth in Imran's claim of a foreign-backed plot. Where does that leave Pakistan's influence in the Middle East region? Because it has good relations with many Arab countries. There have been times when Arab countries have said, hey, can you send us your troops to help us fight this or that battle, right? Yeah, I'm not sure Pakistan has acquiesced every time, but certainly I think Pakistan and the Middle Eastern countries, in particular the GCC, are ironclad relationships and they're not going to change dramatically 
even though there's been a big shift in terms of how Arabs, I think, see Pakistan. And I think a lot of this dysfunction, these calamities, the fallout from the calamities, the political circus, all of these things lead a lot of young Arabs in particular to look at Pakistan with a lot less respect and reverence than perhaps their parents or grandparents used to. All right. Time to get out the crystal ball. Are you ready, Musharraf? Final question. So what's going to happen next, basically? You know, Pakistan went through some terrible times in 2005. There was a massive earthquake, 80,000 people died. There was a massive flood in 2010. 20 million people were displaced. It was $10 billion worth of damage. And somehow, throughout that period, Pakistan was fighting a war against terrorists. As we stand here today watching the catastrophe that's unfolding in terms of these floods and the very painful political contest that's reducing Pakistani politicians and the military from what is their rightful stature, there's a tendency and a desire maybe to be quite pessimistic about the future. But my sense is with a median age of 23, it's not really the elite in Pakistan that are going to define its future. It's those young people. So I'm still going to cling to a certain modicum of hope. I like hope. On that point, I think that's maybe a good theme to end on. Musharraf, it's been absolutely a joy talking to you. Thanks so much. It's my pleasure to talk to you, Sami. Thank you for having me on. And thank you for listening. This episode was produced by Khalid Sultan, sound designer, George Elwir, and our research was done by our intern, Nada Shakir. Our engagement team is led by our producer, Ayal Malik, and assistant engagement producer, Munira Dosari. Omar Saleh is our executive producer, and I'm your host, Sami Zaydan. For now, is goodbye, guys. Hello, I'm Charles Dance, your narrator for Hindsight, an original podcast by Al Jazeera. In season four, we carry on exploring the lives of history's most notable figures, from Rosa Parks to Pol Pot. We meet the people who changed the way we think about our world and those who left it marked by their infamy. Hindsight from Al Jazeera, wherever you get your podcasts.